On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Gazelle, and Gazelle became the caretaker for an entitled, stunted narcissist. It's a story of trauma responses, facades, narcissistic injury, depression, and creating the space to heal. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Gazelle. How are you? I'm doing good today. How are you? I'm doing well. I forgot to even introduce who I am for everyone who's listening who's never heard this show before. I am Brandon Chadwick. And if you want to be a guest on our show, like Gazelle is today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. You click on that button, takes us to our Guest Form page, read all the instructions, and then fill out our Guest Form. And if you send in instructions like Gazelle did today, I thank you from the bottom of my heart because her um, her notes that she gave me are um, just superb. So thank you, uh, Gazelle. And also, everyone, you can send us an email as well at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And today, we are going to hear Gazelle's story. And Gazelle was in a relationship with a very entitled, emotionally stunted, narcissistic person who presented themselves in one way, and it took a while for you to figure out what was going on due to the distance. You didn't really know that the facade that they were presenting was really just a facade. So thank you so much for being here with us today. And now, without further ado, Gazelle, the floor is now yours. Wow, big step. (laughs) Well, thank you, Brandon. I just want to say before I dive into my story for the listeners that I really appreciate that you're here and and hosting this this space, this virtual space for other people to come and share what they've been through because it's so important to know that you're never alone. Um, Well, thank you. Yeah. So, gosh, I guess my story... It starts a little farther back than I wish it did. Um, It starts long before meeting my ex when I was a child. Because for me, the wounds that I experienced as a kid were what led me to and and made me vulnerable to, to trying to love someone who couldn't love themselves and who wasn't themselves at all and would then use that to hurt me. So I, going back to my childhood, I suppose I was a child of divorced parents. They tried to stay together for a long time. Um, I think they divorced when I was around 10, but I don't remember or seeing my parents having like a loving or engaging relationship. Um, I mostly remember my mom trying to work nights at the hospital, being gone a lot. She would come home and try to homeschool my brothers and I. My parents 
would try to go to counseling to work on their relationship. I had no idea that's where they were at. I just knew that they were gone for like a whole day. And I had to be, my brothers and I would be left with a large family who would babysit us. Those parents were also mostly not there. So we were being babysat by teenagers because at least they are legally allowed to be home alone. <laughs> so um, that, I just remember longing for my family a lot um, and not being, not remembering them being around a ton. And um, while I was being babysat, um, there was a teenage boy there who took advantage of me and um, sexually assaulted me when I was seven. So before my parents divorced, but essentially they're, what I've realized through the years is that the, their lack of presence in my life left me vulnerable for that. Um, and during that incident, um, I was told by my abuser that he would kill me if I ever said anything. And as a seven-year-old, you just take that at exactly what those words mean. Um, and so I was terrified to ever mention anything about what had happened and so ashamed and had no words <laughs> for what had, had even happened to me. I, I didn't actually know what had happened to my body until um, after years later, my parents had divorced and I was sent to um, elementary school finally, which I was very excited about. And we did sex ed. <laughs> and I remember them talking about what that, you know, teaching us things and like just having this realization in my mind of, oh my God, like what happened to me? And still for years, didn't say anything to anyone. So throughout this, I just, I guess, became someone who would silence her feelings, who couldn't admit what had happened to herself because of shame um, and fear. And I also grew up to try to be a caretaker for other people because I was always trying to take care of my brother, take care of my family. How I got attention from my family was if I was really good <laughs> and loving, right? And so I would, I would always be the one trying to peacemake and um, do other things because that's the way that I would receive attention and love. So it led me to being like a perfectionist and kind of a goody two shoes and even when I was young, other kids in my, my grade would tell me, you're such a mom. And they would like tease me and tell me, like laugh at me and stuff because I would be taking care of everyone that I came into contact with. So the other, I guess, kind of thread that would later leave me really entangled was that my family was very religious. And so I grew up very attuned to um, religion and the laws of religion. Christianity was my, my family's religion, and I, and I would still identify as, as a Christian. And now I identify more as a spiritual person, I suppose. <laughs> but um, it's the rigid kind of thinking that you always have to give of yourself the, these ideas of that the church really instills in you, that you have to turn the other cheek, that you should always be more loving, that you should never, ever, ever get divorced under any circumstances. And that I lived 
as a child of divorced parents. And then my family and my grandparents would kind of shame my parents for getting divorced. I was like, oh no, I can never, I can never get divorced. So I grew up like with all these, I guess, thoughts and habits and behaviors. And they all led me to a really particular vulnerability. So for everyone listening, and for those of you who listen to the show or are listening for the first time that have never been through any of this and ask why someone might stay, everyone has their different reasons and uh, that they stay. Some people don't have stuff going into the relationship and they get manipulated. But what Gazelle has just laid out here in a most perfect way of laying out here of all of the reasons why someone would possibly stay. Your perfectionism will most likely be fear of failure. Um, the peacemaking, the caretaking over your own self to gain love will most likely be a, a big thing. The silencing of the feelings that happened at this age. Uh, there's no authority kind of figure around you that is showing you uh, love in a lot of these cases. So you're probably searching for that feeling. And when you bundle all of these things up already, if someone's going to get their foot in the door, then they're going to be able to do a lot of damage. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was really ripe for that in my life. Um, and yeah. I, I mean, when you're going through it, you don't realize any of those things are happening. And so I can look back now after years and therapy and see all these things, but going through it, I never would have been able to name any of it at all because um, it was just normal. It was just my life. It was just how I grew up, right? So before you even get into a relationship with the person who the story is about, mm -hmm. you do get into a relationship uh, when you are younger. So uh, take us through that. Yeah. So I um, didn't have a lot of relationships or intimate relationships um, in my life, but the ones that I had were very intense and long. <laughs> and so I my I had I think dated like for like a week or two a couple of boys and then I wound up um having my first long-term boyfriend when I was a senior in high school and this was my first um what felt like my first real relationship and as I look back it was also my first abusive intimate relationship and um overall he and I had been together for three years from my senior year of high school to my sophomore year of college and I just remember like I remember it being really intense really fast and just so I mean you're in high school so lots of <laughs> emotions and hormones and all the things and I also just remember him being really hot-headed like really angry and like that he would just turn on a dime and like he would think things would maybe be fine or he would be sweet. And then all of a sudden he could be like physically aggressive. I remember my younger brother one time trying to come in and, and talk to me in my room and he was there. And my boyfriend just got so angry and was like shoving him and pushing him onto the ground. And 
I, I mean, that should be like a, like a red flag, like an immediate, like, nope, this is not an okay relationship. And I was frightened, but I couldn't, I, I felt like I had no voice in that situation. Again, kind of coming back to that, like stuffing down of feelings, right? I had no idea how to verbalize something that wasn't okay, right? Um, so I just kept staying in that relationship and would kind of like tiptoe around if he was angry. And I remember too, like very early on, I think it was still in high school, actually, he gave me a promise ring. Another actually red flag that you would think about now is like, it's kind of love bombing, right? He wanted to make me his. And for me in the moment, I was just totally smitten about it because I was like, oh, he loves me and he wants me to be with him forever. But it was, it was a way of um, manipulating my feelings so that he could then, yeah, just keep manipulating me in other ways so that he would never have to, that, so I, kind of kept on in the relationship, hoping that things would get better. And um, they didn't, <laughs> they just kept getting worse in other ways, like crossing physical boundaries that I wanted to maintain and things like that. And it just, it was like this slow erosion in my life. And I kept trying to, I guess, cognitively, like, explain it in my mind I would try to make sense of it and so it, it was this building dissonance between what my experience was and what I was how I wanted it to be and I kept finding myself in this bigger and bigger gap I suppose that this dissonance was creating and because of that I tried multiple times to break up with him and you would think so breaking up is something that you shouldn't have to try to do it, it, it should just be like a, you break up and then you're done. But me being a person who didn't hold boundaries, couldn't really speak for myself, valued love or whatever love was defined as by someone else greater than my own experience that I um, would, he would be like, no, we're not breaking up you know, like this isn't, and he would just keep coming over and I could never break up with him. <laughs> so. But you're also at a very young age here dealing with yeah. the mixed message of he gave me this promise ring. He right. wants to be with me. And then he's being this way to me at an older age. That's an issue for most people when you're getting that mis mixed message within these relationships. But as a teenager, that's very, especially with what has already gone on in your life, very difficult, most likely for you to really figure out in any sort of way. It's like you're being pushed and pulled everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good way to describe it. Um, it, it felt like the world or your reality just you couldn't make sense of it at all. There was, the ground was always shifting underneath your feet. And so I finally, like, I wasn't happy in that relationship, even though I <laughs> couldn't end it. Um, and then I finally went on this um, kind of summer trip for like eight weeks where I went away. And this is actually where I met the ex. And I remember meeting the ex there. I was still dating this boyfriend and I just remember 
hearing him for the first time and we hadn't we hadn't personally interacted at all but I just remember hearing his voice and it like triggered something inside me for whatever reason and I just like paid paid more attention I was like I wonder who this person is and while I was there for that little over two months I finally got up the courage to break up with the guy that I had my long-term boyfriend from high school that I had been wanting to break up with and tried to break up with this is probably the fourth time <laughs> and so I finally did it and distance obviously helped because he couldn't keep crossing my boundaries because I wasn't there right like I wasn't physically there anymore so that distance helped and then it also helped me because then I liked this other guy mine that would turn into the ex for me um like the one of my long-term relationship and then by the end of that two months he and I were dating and so when I went back home and my high school boyfriend tried to be like no we're still dating we're still together I was like no we're not like I'm dating somebody else because I could at least hold the boundary of I'm not someone that dates two people at one time <laughs> like if there's anything about that I, I I can at least be loyal to that for myself <laughs> so it's like you needed an absolute truth and this hard boundary in in that sense where you're like, well, I can't do anything about it now. Like there was no option. Like because you were already connected to something else, um, there was no going back. If the other person didn't exist, you might have been sucked back. In, into that one but with here you needed that specific thing in your the way your brain worked was you know that's how you were able to say no or say you know you needed a yep. reason to say no no wasn't a complete sentence for you just because you felt you <laughs> wanted it right yeah it had to have something else attached to it to make it truly rational and grounded and real yeah so in some ways, my ex saved me from that relationship. So that it, it felt, I mean, that felt really good. And that for me was a good way to, to start this new relationship. Like it couldn't get much worse than the first one, right? So like anything almost in some ways was a step up. But um, the, in the beginning of that relationship felt obviously so much better than the last one so if I were to just like compare the two in my you know 21 year old brain I was like well of course this guy treats me so much better and you know like we were at that point long distance as well so there was physical space and I felt like I could at least in the beginning be somewhat engaged um in college and in the sports that I was doing and things like that but probably within a few months um, we started having a lot of like fights over the phone and things like that. And he, we, I don't even know what we would fight about. It would be it like nothing, totally nothing would start these fights. Um, and I just remember being on the phone and like mute, like trying to talk and trying to engage, but like, I couldn't speak or say anything. And so, I mean, if you can't, speak or share your voice in an argument then you would never win <laughs> like you always lose so I and I wanted to again still be that kind of peacemaker and caretaker so I would always kind of give in and find a reason why I had done something wrong or I could have done something better 
and a lot of times that I think it revolved around how my time, like if I wasn't available for him when he wanted to text or call right away. And so that meant that very slowly over time, I wasn't doing the things that I wanted to do, or I wasn't engaged in the activities that I used to be engaged in. Like I played uh, ultimate frisbee in college and I was really good at it. And I, we were doing like really well as a team. And all of a sudden I just stopped showing up to any practices. I didn't go to any games my junior year or my senior year. I wasn't even a part of the team anymore. And I had helped us like get to regional <laughs> like the year before. And um, my, my friends and my teammates were like, where are you? So before your friends were in this whole entire where are you situation mm-hmm. and before this controlling behavior started to occur, because he's trying to control your time and yeah. your, your scheduling from a long distance, mm-hmm. were there moments before all of that where he's telling you that he loves you? Like, are things like, how's he? Uh, what is his language towards you before those things started to happen? Yeah, that's a good question. So to go back a little bit, um, very early on within probably two or three weeks of officially, of like being together officially, um, you know, when you're 21 and it's like Facebook official and everything, um, he loved bombed me really hard and told me I was the one we were going to get married. He wanted, you know, it was very so similar in essence to what had happened to me with my high school relationship of having the promise ring and everything. It was this very um, fast, like engaged, intense, emotional relationship. And he's coming in in savior mode in a lot of ways. So Mm -hmm. for you're looking at him as like a savior and with the distance, there's relief or you get space for yourself to at least at the beginning, uh, be your own person again. Yeah. So, you know, your dissonance there, if it comes up would most likely be the, well, he was the guy that got me out of the last one. And now he's doing this and you're back in where you were before, but you just didn't know it. Right. I didn't real. And it was like the slow boil, right? So like, and you just don't realize it when it's happening because it's these really slow behaviors that you can't really tell, you know, maybe week to week to week. But if you look over months to months to years that you'll notice these subtle changes. So over time, as things, you know, kind of got amped up and he started to control my time more and my friends were saying, where have you been? Like, we, we aren't seeing you. They actually tried to intervene in the relationship. And so two of my best friends actually came to me and said, Gazelle, like, where are you? You can't keep doing this. You can't keep dating this guy. He's, he's taking over your life and this is unhealthy. And I think they, they asked me to turn off my phone for a weekend and um, to go to leave the campus to kind of like take myself on a little like personal retreat and just like pray about it because that's what we do. (laughs) And so I said, okay, um, I'll do that. And I told my, I remember telling my ex that that was what I was going to do. And he was furious. He was so mad that I would do something like that. And he was so offended that I would even consider doing that. 
because obviously it to him it it shed light on him it put this at risk like what he was trying to build so he took a lot of offense at that so then I had to you know peace make and um kind of you know find ways to make it better and always you know be the one to try to fix it so it put me back in that mode and even though I did do the weekend where I turn off my phone, I didn't talk to him. I still came back just as committed or more committed even to the relationship, feeling like I had done my due diligence. I had separated myself. I had prayed about it. <laughs> and um, this was it for me, like that I I felt like this was the relationship. So he, he did really try to sabotage my relationship with my friends after that. He didn't want me to keep hanging out with them. And he felt like they, you know, he would say things about how um, they must not care for me because they didn't want, you know, us to be together and things like that. But I, um, I was still very committed to my friends. I knew how much they cared for me and that, you know, he could never say anything that would take that away. So this became a saving grace for me later um, that I, in one, in some ways that I am that loyal to everyone that I meet, not just my uh, intimate abusers, <laughs> at least, but to the other people in my life that do truly care about me and um, that they, we were able to maintain a relationship despite his attempted sabotage. So I guess that was kind of how things began in our relationship. And then a couple years in, we I graduated from college um, and moved. We got married, and I moved across the country then to be with him. And so then it was. This was kind of a a crux, I guess, a little bit because things shifted even more after after we got married. Um, so before we get to the married, I just want to point out for everyone when you're because we've heard it a lot of times on on the show when you're in a long distance relationship and these things are going on, a lot of things can be hidden. And there's the space that is in between. So yes, some of these things are happening, but you have your own space. You have that ability to kind of get away. These things are happening, but when you're not physically in the same place as someone at this time, you don't really see the full picture yet so your relationship is getting established here over three years and you're younger at the time uh you're able to deal with everything so now you're you know it's you're probably in your mind based upon the way you've been raised and you're thinking this is a three-year relationship i'm a perfectionist i don't fail at anything you know, we have a good thing going on here. Like, I'm good to him. It seems, you know, your needs aren't being met in some instances already. But the way you are, this seems like a fit. Because for you, this is normal. Mm-hmm. This yep. is this, uh, your, this type of chaos is a normality for you. Yep, absolutely. And And I wouldn't know. I wouldn't if it had been a better relationship or if, you know, I would have felt like something was probably off, right? <laughs> because, because you would have probably tried to be fixing something that didn't need to be fixed. Yep, <laughs> exactly. So we, it, it was kind of like an unfortunate puzzle piece that fit. Um, and then I guess, yeah, once we got married and that distance closed, he had to become a lot savvier um or he tried to become more savvier in some of his behaviors but 
it was really at that point that um, he couldn't hide behind his facade anymore. And the layers of lies <laughs> that he had kind of enclosed himself in, you know, just kind of fell apart in some ways. Um, and so, but that actually amped up his um, abusive behaviors. So because he could no longer shield himself with just his words anymore, he had to use um, stronger behaviors to keep me like hooked in the relationship. So some of the kind of initial red flags, I guess, after we got initially married and I moved across the country for this guy, he had told me, you know, it had seemed like he was well-established independently, that he was living on his own, that he was, you know, taking care of himself. Um, but then when we moved in and combined our finances, and I didn't keep anything separate, it was my mind, you know, and what I'd been told when you're in it together, married, everything is is together. And that was very much, I guess, from that Christian kind of mindset of, you know, the two become one, nothing is separate from other people. And, and so all your money goes into this one bucket. <laughs> and I figured out that he made almost no money and that his parents were just bankrolling him. He lived on his own, but his his school was being fully paid for, his phone, his car, his um, rent, all of his food, <laughs> like everything was being paid for by his parents. So then I, you know, just brand new grad, just started my own, my first job. I was suddenly the breadwinner. I had to work extra hours so that I could pay our rent. <laughs> like, and he would just be sitting at home doing nothing and like not working and getting mad at me for leaving dishes in the sink. <laughs> but I was such a perfectionist. And at this point I was married. I was, I was stuck is what I had said in my mind. Um, and so I had to keep making it work. I, I had to find ways to make this relationship work. And I had to love him. That was my commitment, right? I had, I had made that commitment. So um, he would try to like smooth things over and find other ways to, you know, kind of play the victim. So he was a first generation, I guess, American. His parents were from and they had moved here when he was young and he was still trying to finish school. So he had lots of reasons not to be actually making any income. Um, at least that's what he would tell me, even though he wasn't really taking classes and all these kinds of stuff. So he would always find a way or a different excuse about his behavior. Um, even if I could like find something out and then begin to name a truth about it, he would try to find a way to spin it in some way so that I couldn't make sense of it, I suppose. Um, and it would keep me confused enough that my commitment to loving and staying in the relationship was still the primary kind of driver rather than noticing red flags. <laughs> um, over time, the he moved from kind of this mental manipulation of like lying and shielding and kind of doing those things to um, like if we were to get in a fight, things would become more physical. And it was really hard for me to to see for a long time because I always like had thought physical abuse was when you get punched in the face or, you know, something very like clear, like you have bruises on your body from it. Like that's what physical abuse looks like. At least it 
it's what it what did look like in my mind but he would typically do things like if we got into an argument he would come and grab my shoulders or my arms to hold me in place and that for me I didn't realize at the time but it would trigger from when I was a kid and I was held down <laughs> and I couldn't move my arms um and so it would really amp me up right and really bring out a lot of emotions so then I was actually hitting him because I needed to escape <laughs> and um, I didn't feel safe. And so then it would make me feel really bad. I'm like, I must be abusive. I must be this bad person, right? And how could I not control my anger or my emotions? Um, and it took me a long time to really understand that, I think, for myself, because it's not black and white, I, I guess. But that's, I guess, when like things like the physical element of the relationship started increasing was probably like a couple years into the marriage. And it, again, was like this slowly boiling pot. It wasn't over weeks to weeks or even months to months. Sometimes it was like over, if I looked back over a year, I could see how things maybe had shifted. But trying to maintain that perspective and think about how things had changed over a year. It's just not something that you really do when you're 22, 23, 24. Um, and it's, it's a harder perspective to maintain. So it's why a lot of it stayed really hidden to me for a long time. It still was that true, like you said earlier too, like my habits of holding things in, trying to find and win love with my with my good behaviors, like those were still really prominent in the relationship. And so those kept me really hooked for a long time too. just my own desire to get it right. I would read book after book after book of self-help, how to make your marriage better, how to win your spouse over <laughs> like all the time. So right here, the perfectionist in you is blaming yourself mm -hmm. for everything that's going on and you're your trauma responses of the reactive abuse is uh, taking over to reinforce those things. Is he telling you that you're the one that's the problem during this time? Or have you already made up your mind that it is you, like without him saying anything? I think I made up in my mind that it was, it was definitely me. I don't think he had to say anything about that. Um, I think, I think if we got into a really bad fight, he would like apologize and say like, I'm going to make things better. I promise. And, but it was, it was always this cycle of, um, he would go right back to the same behavior, but then even worse than it had been before. So he would, it was more in like a honeymooning. Um, he didn't have to try to hook me because I had hooked myself <laughs> in a lot of ways. And uh, during this like first two year period, uh, is his rage something you're avoiding? And are you are walking on eggshells a lot to avoid that rage? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Because he also, um, I mean, I hadn't realized it in the same way from as my high school boyfriend, but he definitely would get really angry very suddenly about nothing. Um, I think I left like a I left like a spoon in the sink once when I left for working the night shift and he got really angry at me in the morning, like that I had left a spoon there. And 
I, it just, it became like, I would always have to do everything perfect all the time. I'd have to keep the house perfectly clean, do all the dishes, all of his dishes. I had to do his dishes, but I couldn't leave any dishes. And it was just like this constant battle. I would just spend so much energy trying to keep my environment organized um, that I, and I couldn't, didn't, didn't have any energy to pay attention to, hey, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like this. You're getting all these hypocritical things mm-hmm. that are going on where you have to follow one set of rules and this person doesn't have to follow the same set of rules. When it comes to control, are there other controlling things that are going on during that time? And when it comes to the maturity level of this person, what does their, you know, you said before that they're being taken care of by his, his parents. And mm-hmm. you're also the new mom here as well. Yep. You're the mom and the um, caretaker and the uh, na- you're everything in that house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so what is his life generally day to day? Is he working? Like, is he just hang? Is he hanging out with friends? Are you allowed yeah. to hang out with people? Or what's the, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. Um. He. He got, he tried to add some hours to his job. He was, he um, was working at like a school as an assistant PE teacher. And so he had gotten a few extra hours doing that. And I still, despite working and having a bachelor's degree and working as a nurse, (laughs) wasn't making a lot of money. Um, And so I was like, you have to get, you have to do something because I can't keep paying all of these bills and my student loans. And he said that he was, he wanted to get his bachelor's in kinesiology. And then he flunked out after a semester. And I had made him promise that he could only go to the school if his parents were still paying for it, but we couldn't have any more loans. There was absolutely no student loans. And then after he flunked out, I got this bill in the mail that was for like over $10,000 in student loans. And I was just livid. I was so mad. Um, And he was like, I didn't know I didn't sign anything. I was like, well, you obviously did. So it's just, I, I felt like I was just like trying to keep my head above water with trying to survive and, and trying to get him to add to the relationship you know, to feel like he was more of a partner Um, instead of knowing that I was his, I was essentially his caretaker. I was mothering him as his wife. And when these little uh, failures happened on his end Mm -hmm. and you were to question him about these things, would he go into a shame spiral and then you would caretake that shame spiral? Typically, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think I got him pretty picked. <laughs> you called it out. I mean, because I don't think I even put that in my notes. <laughs> no, you so, did not. No, you did not. Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly what he would do, and then I would have to make it better. And because I was too aggressive or too, you know, too much, and um, so then, then it would be me profusely apologizing about the situation. Um, so. Yeah, he definitely had me hooked in all the right ways 
for a long time. Like to everything that was my exact woundedness, he knew how to fit himself perfectly in um, so that that wound would stay just ever unhealing. Um, and I couldn't, and I couldn't see it because I was just trying to get through every day to live. So within the context of how your relationship was going at this point around the two, three year mark, was he also playing, uh, the victim? What were some of the other ways that he was, um, feeding into your, uh, vulnerabilities or the, the, I'm going to say it, but like the weaknesses in your boundary fence. Yeah. Um, well, I think he just continued a lot of the behaviors were so, I think, insidious in, in, from my perspective, um, he, he definitely would play the victim. And if, if things like got heated and I maybe started to point out some of the, um, his errors or like the things that he was doing that just didn't make any sense, then he would kind of retreat and become really, um, all of a sudden like be crying about something. Like maybe I would say like, Hey, I want you, like, I, you know, he wasn't very good at spending money. And so, and again, we had that joint bank account where I was the primary breadwinner. And and so he had a de- just a debit card that he would just keep spending. And I would try to be like, we have this much money, you know, we, and, and I was like, can you just sign in to the bank account every once in a while? Can you just look at the bank account? And he would just get so, he would get into these behaviors where he would just start crying about like, he doesn't know how to do that. And like, why can't I just keep giving him an allowance and he'll follow what I do. If I just give him a hundred dollars, you know, then he'll just only spend that. And it became like, he would use that in a way to make me feel like I was being a bully. He would tell me I was nagging him all the time. Um, and it made me feel so bad. Like I'm, I'm not a bully. Like I'm trying to be loving. I just don't, I I want us to not have 10 cents in our bank account. Right. Like I, so I was trying to like make sense of how do I, I can't, there was like no way for me to give corrective action because anytime I tried to say something to, um, to point out something that didn't make sense or that could be better, or that would actually have made us feel like we were in an engaged and partnered relationship then it became about my character and how unloving I was and how nagging I was and being a loving person is like the central core of my identity and so it would just hit that button perfectly so I'd have to stop anything that would be um be trying to like call him out, I suppose, and caught like that he, that would then like unlayer his facade that he had built up to protect himself. And so I could never, I could never get close because if the moment that I did at all, it would become about me and, and in a way like to my core that I couldn't, I couldn't push on it anymore. So I'm going to make a little bit of a guess here about what type of person you're dealing with and 
you have on your hands here someone who is entitled. You have someone who, from what I can most likely gather, is someone who, when kind of growing up, had a lot of things done for him, and now as an adult, had a lot of things done for him. He was, you know, probably not proud of himself for. Uh, being the way he is, presenting himself as someone who can do things, but in reality they can't and has a lot of shame most likely attached to everything and that creates a lot of narcissistic injury and this person is not thinking of you and they're only thinking of their own pain and in response to a lot of the things when you become the mom figure here because there's a lot of mom and well, parental issues, I'm assuming that when you take on that role, uh, you know, you're caretaking him and he, he needs that parent and, and you're kind of doing that. And then when you, you kind of put him in his place, not put him in his place, but when you want your needs met and things like that, he has these tantrums and then he has the shame of probably not living up to the expectations of himself and, and, and things along those lines. And that's when the abuse comes out when those injuries are hit or when he has the feels the need of control because he has no control in any part of his life for the most part and it's just one giant wound that has nothing uh there's there's no needs of you being met because it's just really all about those wounds that are going on and it's just a cycle for him and in the sense of uh, where I guess where he is, um, I assume he's somewhere along the line here played the the victim. And has there been has he ever mentioned being a victim like in his past, or is he carrying like a chip on his shoulder in any way? Yeah, yeah, he would talk. Um, so I had mentioned that he you know grew up in Colombia and then he moved to the states when he was really little. So he would. Um, talk a lot about how hard his parents had to work and um, how he didn't get much attention from them, which was probably true. Um, and he would just play these really sad stories about himself to kind of continue to put me in that state of needing to be a caretaker and needing to soothe him all the time. Um, so that I, that you know, that I would always be paying attention to his wounds rather than my own or realizing how he was wounding me. Um, so it kept him in this constant state of being like that I was always the giver <laughs> and he was always receiving. Um, and that was a state that I knew I was, it was very, very familiar to me um, throughout my whole life. And so I didn't realize how much I was giving and how much it was taking from me. For those of you who have not read The Human Magnet Syndrome, you two would be a textbook perfect match. Hmm. Yeah. You really would I, be. I, I will have to write that book down because I don't think I've read it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that was essentially those behaviors kind of defined most of our relationship. It was this push and pull, like constant me being pulled into having to give, having to give, having to give, um, and feeling more and more worthless 
as I'm giving and giving and giving and giving um, because then he would be constantly having to undercut my identity so that I would keep giving more and more and more. So as far as how you are feeling about yourself, about the situation, obviously you're caretaking, you're a mom, you're a single mom, you're a single mom with a job taking care of a kid, but you're also, you're, you're married to him, which is the yeah. unfortunate part. Right. And at a certain point, I assume you have to start running yourself uh, really thin as far as none of your me needs are getting met, I assume. Right. Um, yeah, pretty much none of them. I mean, I would go to work and I would nurse and care for people. And then I would come home and feel like I was doing the same exact thing. And he, you know, he might've been home all day, but gosh darn, I'm the one cooking dinner for both of us. <laughs> Even if I feel absolutely miserable, um, that I would still be doing everything all day. Um, and I, I guess the one thing that I did do to take care of myself throughout of all of that was um, to go to grad school. It was the only, the only way that I would um, invest in myself, I suppose, was to invest in my learning and in my career, um, which I deeply valued. So I kind of coped through, I, my identity was my coping mechanism, I suppose, this identity of a caretaker. And that's, that was my job as well, nurse, caretaker, like the ultimate. <laughs> um, and so when I wanted to go back to grad school and that, you know, threatened him, I still clung to it because it had, I had, I just had to, um, because it was how I could fulfill my sense of self was to be able to, you know, continue to dive into my career. So though grad school for me was kind of um, this saving grace, I guess, in my mind of like that I was going to be able to invest in myself, but at the same time was whatever, everything that grad school is crazy and stressful and super time consuming on top of the fact that I'm already um, like working still practically full-time hours because I have to pay our mortgage at that point. And so I'm like deeply committed in all of these different spaces, including in this relationship that is just sucking all of the life out of me. So I basically came to my wits end and in some ways just unraveled during grad school um, because I, I had no, I had nothing left to give. I was just emptied of everything. And I found myself really depressed even though I would never have been able to name it as depression. I was at, in grad school to be a nurse practitioner, and I could name to you all the signs and symptoms of depression, how to clinically diagnose someone with it. But did I recognize it in myself? Absolutely not. <laughs> I was totally blind to the fact that it was something that was happening to me until it became so intense that I wanted... I was having these insidious thoughts of not wanting to be alive anymore and to just wanting to let go of everything because it felt so hopeless. I, I couldn't see how any of anything was ever going to get any better. And I felt so tired. I just felt so tired all the time. I didn't know how to wake up every day and get to the end of it 
I didn't know that I was, I didn't feel confident when I woke up in the morning that I was going to be able to make it through every day. And yet somehow I did. Um, but I found myself just so broken, I think, by everything. Um, and I, it, for me, kind of the darkest moment, um, if I'm really honest about it, is when I was driving home one day. I was living in the south of the United States. So, and they have these crazy torrential downpours. Just, you cannot see your windshield wipers are going as fast as they can, but you'd have to pull over to the side of the road. You just cannot drive. And I was driving down the highway, so I was going really fast. And I just wanted to let go of the steering wheel. I just, I, I thought, gosh, if this is my, this is, this would be an easy way to end. Like, it wouldn't look like anything. It wouldn't look like I had tried to hurt myself. And I could just, you know, nothing could happen. But then I thought in my mind, um, this is the really cognitive side of me, um, that women who attempt suicide actually are typically unsuccessful. And so I was like, oh, well, then I might not actually die. And then the worst case scenario would be that I would be injured and need to be taken care of by my ex and unable to do the other things that made me feel satisfied, like work, right? Um, and so I, I was like, oh, I can't do that. And then it was after that moment that I was like, wait a minute, what was I just thinking? <laughs> Those are crazy thoughts. Like that's, how could I be thinking that? Um, and I remember sharing it with a friend in grad school and I hadn't at that point really shared with anybody what was happening in my relationship because I felt so ashamed. Like I couldn't fix it. I kept trying to fix the things that were happening to make our relationship better. And I couldn't, so I would never tell anybody. Um, and I remember telling them my friend about this experience and she was like, well, she was like very comforting and, you know, just, so loving and not at all like shameful, like didn't treat me at all. Like this was a shameful thought, which was really, really generous. And she was like, if you ever need a place to stay, like if you ever need anything, you have a place. Like, so she could just, even without having heard a lot from me, could see that there was so much underneath the surface. And it just, she was able to like offer me space. And so that was really, I just kind of was like, okay, but I just kind of kept living and trying to make it work and going through the motions of everything. And at that point, my depression was getting to, um, obviously a point that it was interrupting my life (laughs) in some ways. And that meant too, that it was interrupting what my ex could get out of me and he then had to keep escalating and to try to get more, right? Because he, I was the fountain for him of all of the feelings that he needed, all of the love, like he was the black hole and I had to keep pouring into the black hole to satisfy it. Um, So if it wasn't an ever continuing flow of, you know, things for me, of emotions for me, then he was totally empty. So he couldn't let that happen. So he was trying a bunch of things to keep keep me hooked 
um, never, like never leaving me alone, always in my space. And I'm in grad school. I'm like at this point, 10 days away from defending my dissertation. Um, so I'm under a crazy amount of stress and I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> um, and he decided that he, it was time to go to counseling after six years of marriage. He, you know, this was the time we had to go this week. <laughs> and, um, I just remember being so overwhelmed and distressed and being like, God, right now, <laughs> like I can barely make it through the day. Like, why does it have to be right now? And I called my best friend from college who we hadn't connected a lot over the years, but we just, every time we would connect, she just knew my soul. <laughs> and so I just felt like I needed to call her. And um, she very quickly on in, she was able to get a lot more out of me about my relationship than I had ever shared with anybody in the six years of marriage. She just, without like doing a lot of poking or prodding, she was able to like just get me to start to see things a little bit more clearly. She would just ask such good questions. And I remember her asking me, what do you feel like you need? What do you need right now? And all I could think of that at that moment was I just need to breathe. I need some space. And she was like, okay, well, what's your next best step to get that? And I was like, uh, <laughs> like I, you know, I need him to leave. I need, I need him to leave me alone. And she was like, okay, well, you're supposed to go to the counseling appointment. You're going to ask for space. That counselor should hear and see you and hear that these behaviors are not okay. <laughs> like, and he should, or she should acknowledge that and, and help get you that space. So this is a, this should be a safe space for you to ask for what you need. Um, so I want you to. She had me practice saying, you know, those things before the counseling appointment to practice it. And I was so, it which was good for me. I think otherwise I wouldn't have been able to say it. I felt so nervous about it. I literally was wanted to vomit <laughs> in the moment um, because my body was like so intense. Um, and the other thing that she told me before going to the appointment was she encouraged me not to go with my ex because we were supposed to drive there together and she said very clearly like you need to drive there by yourself um and she was like that's the one thing I'm going to tell you to do like you have to drive there by yourself and I said okay well, I was like well he's supposed to be here in like 15 minutes and she was like then you need to leave right now you need to hang up this phone you need to grab some things you need to leave and you need to not let him know where you're going and I was like okay I guess I guess that's what I'll do. <laughs> and so I packed up some stuff. I took some school stuff with me so I could keep working on things. And I like hid out in this coffee shop, like trying to ignore his phone calls and or just like texting him back. I'll see you at the appointment. See you at the appointment. See you at the appointment. Um, and finally getting to the counseling appointment. And it was so uncomfortable. It was probably one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life. <laughs> And I, we went in there and it was this old man for the counselor. I just remember it's like really long gray hair, totally. I mean, and I think he had it back in this like little bun. Um, 
and his vibe was very much like marriage first, like must always. Um, and like, we were there to save the marriage where it was his language. We were there to save the marriage. And so we both had to be invested in, in saving the marriage. And when I kind of talked about how I felt physically unsafe in our relationship at home and like described the behaviors and I think a few months previous to that, like my ex had gotten so amped up that um, he had punched a wall next to my head and like left this big hole in the wall. And I described that and the counselor was just like totally dismissive, just like, well, you said you're here to save the marriage. So what are you going to do to save the marriage? And I said, like, I need, I need space. I'm trying to finish grad school. I need, I need my ex to move out of the house, you know, because I'm the one paying for the mortgage. I'm the one, you know, paying for everything. And the counselor, the counselor did all this negotiating, not even my ex necessarily, but the counselor did all this negotiating of like, well, if you need the space, then you should move out and your ex should stay there. And if you're serious about wanting to save the marriage, then, then this needs to be time limited. It can only be for a certain amount of time that you're not together. And then you need to be back in the same space together. And so we landed on 10 days because it was 10 days until my dissertation. And so I got only the amount of time until I could present. And it had to be me that moved out. So all of a sudden I had to run home after this appointment and throw things literally into a laundry basket. I felt like I was in some like Twilight movie or something like just so like, what is happening to my life? Um, I just remember and like, remember being so intense, like praying, like, oh my God, I hope my ex does not come home right now. Like I am not prepared for an encounter. Like I I don't know how that would go because I totally blindsided him in that appointment. Um, and I knew that he could like be really amped up if I saw him. And I thank God he didn't, he didn't come home. He didn't, that I, in the few minutes that I was there. And then I just like ran out the door, threw everything into my car. I didn't even know where I was going at that point. <laughs> I just like called my friend that like a few weeks before that had been like, if you ever need a place to stay. And I called her. I was like, remember when you mentioned that you had that spare bed? Uh, can I come over and like stay with you for at least a couple of weeks? And she was like, yeah, come over. What happened? And so I was trying to just, you know, I was like, I'll tell you more when I get there. But um, and then I heard her, her husband opening the door and being like, hello, like I, we've never met before. But yeah, here's the guest bedroom for you. Um, so it was it was very like just intense time like months of intensity and then just this huge shift all of a sudden um and that I I wouldn't have even known was about to happen and I just remember finally like the next morning waking up and like taking a breath like in this stranger's house you know like she was my friend but like with her husband there like I've never been I'd never even visited her house before and um being there and just opening my eyes and like smiling for the first time like I felt like this weight lift off of me and it, it felt so foreign and I just 
at that moment, I kind of, I was like, huh, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize how much I was carrying. And I don't think I, it still took me a long time to unpack all of it, but even like less than 24 hours, just an evening of having space away from him and still with everything else that I'm carrying, right? I'm still trying to finish my dissertation. I'm still trying to do all these other things, working 24 to 36 hours a week, like still doing everything else. But the only thing that has changed is I'm not in the same physical space as him for 12 hours. And I felt immensely better. And so it was like this almost immediate, like confirmation of, wow, like I have to, I have to unpack this more because I don't actually know if I can go back into that. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can go back to that. I, it, it, yeah, it was definitely like this just huge feeling. Like, I, I don't think I can describe it. I don't know if we have words to describe the way that it felt. Um, but it, after having spent so long disconnecting myself from my body and from my feelings, it felt huge. And so I spent, I mean, I, worked my butt off for the next 10 days trying to present this dissertation and um at the same time tried to mentally do a lot and emotionally do a lot of work like what what am i going to do and i i realized really quickly like i i'm not going to go back i can't go back and um i i think within a few days i i wanted i was still living in the south and i wanted to move back home closer to my family and i had been trying to get my ex to do that with me um but i just knew i was like this is my chance i can go back home like this is this is what i have been wanting for for years <laughs> i just want to be back home with my family and um so i like changed my um the background on my phone like in the area that i'm from and um, so every time I looked at my phone, I would see that and I would just light up. I'd be like, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to live there again. And I would have so much work on my plate, but it would be so motivational to me that I just had to keep going and I had to find a way to do that. And so I, um, I think I then, I remember meeting with my ex to tell him like, this was it, like this was going to be the final we weren't going to get back together. And I had thoughts in my mind about, God, I've tried to end relationships with my previous ex before and I could never end them. Right. Like, and so I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to end this relationship and it's going to be final. Like this is going to be it. And I did it. I, was, I think I was surprised with myself at the end, at, at the end of that conversation too, because I went in and I held boundaries and I like walked away, even though he tried to like do all the things that would normally keep me like coming back and like fawning. And I didn't give in. And I was so proud of myself in the moment. I was like, who is this woman? Who, who just showed up? Who showed up? It wasn't, it wasn't me that was before. It was like this new person. And I was like, I like her. I like who this is. And I remember going to, when I presented my dissertation to, um, I didn't tell my chair what had been going on. I think I told her like right after I presented and she looked at me and she was like, you are made of iron. You are so strong. Like I would never have known that anything like that was happening in your life. And I was like, oh, it just like hit me in this way that I was like, oh, I am strong. I can set boundaries. 
I can do this. Look at what I've been holding for years. And I just became, I, I don't know, I just, in that moment, I, I just took it all in and realized how much I could do that I never had allowed myself to do before. And recognized too, that it wasn't selfish for me to do that, that it was actually really healing and um, that it was offering, it was generous because it was generous to everyone that I would be taking care of in my future for me to be whole and connected and to hold boundaries and to do that was going to set me up for success hopefully of years of taking care of a lot of other people because that's what I wanted to do I I want to help people I want to take care of people um but I have to do that for myself first and so if for me this I, I then I think I began to to shift a lot in my kind of personality and that helped me with the separation in the relationship because I um where I think I would have struggled a lot before to hold boundaries and you know with my ex to <laughs> to all of a sudden separate everything after years of having fond over him and given in to all of his whims I just became this like really strong like here's the way things are going to work. And um, it was still really hard, the separation, but I just, I had so much to motivate me that it was all worth it. And I found a lot of people along the way that were really helpful. And I'm, I'm so grateful just that they had been put in my life. It just all kind of happened to be um, but I had a friend that was in law school at the time who um, had a passion for helping women with domestic violence. And when I told her kind of, oh, I'm separating and, you know, she we had been friends. She knew my ex. She was friends with my ex. Um, so when she heard about the things that were happening, she would give me a whole bunch of advice. She's like, here's what you need to do on your phone to make sure he can't find you. Here's, you know, like, here's, here's all these things to stay safe. And here's all these websites to help you like inform yourself. And I remember going to some of the websites that she gave me and like the definitions of physical abuse and violence and domestic violence. I was like, oh, there's a lot of those on there that have described my experience. And I just, I had no idea. Like, I, it was just so normal at the point that I was going through it, that reading it on a, you know, online on this like legal, you know, state website, I was like, wow, that's really black and white. And it was happening to me. Like, I have reason to have felt the way that I felt. And it just was so validating. And she connected me with a great like lawyer that um, he had a lot of experience in working with domestic violence survivors. And and, and at the first, um, when I was trying to work with my ex to kind of separate everything. So, you know, we had all of our finances in one place. So I, when I left the relationship, I had no money. Um, I didn't have access then to our bank account. I was still working, thankfully. So then I was able to get a new bank account that he wasn't a part of and put money into it. And my friends just let me stay for free, which was so generous of them. So I was just able to like, start saving this money to take care of myself and to pay for the lawyer and um, to get a new car and things like that. But he, the lawyer was super helpful um, because my ex was trying to just put these little roadblocks here and there and just kind of 
I don't know, being really annoying <laughs> about everything. Were there any moments where he tried to win you back during the process when you were getting divorced? Yes. Yeah, he did. And and especially it, it was really early on um, when I, I think the day that I had first told him, like, this is it, he he was like, I'm going to win you back. Like, I'm going to, I'm, I promise I'm going to get better. I'm going to keep going to counseling. So he, he did keep going to counseling and he was doing those things. But a few days later, I had gotten this text from somebody like that was kind of an acquaintance. And she was like, is this your husband? And she like sent me a, like a picture and it was his, it was a Bumble profile. Like he, in the midst of like all of this, while he was saying that he was going to win me back over, he had made a, a profile on Bumble. And I was like, no, <laughs> like the one thing you cannot do is like be trying to date other people while you're saying that you're trying to win me over. So there's my firm line. Like I don't cross that line. Nobody crosses that line for me. So I was like, nope, you're not winning me over because you're trying to date other people. And I have objective evidence of that. So it it was pretty short-lived. And then at that, so then at that point when he knew that he wasn't going to win me over anymore, he just was a roadblock. He just tried to make it more like worse for me. So like when I was saying that I was going to get a lawyer, he was saying that he was going to get a lawyer and he was threatening to try to get alimony because I was going to lower his um, quality of life by leaving. So, and he wanted the same standard of living that he had been entitled to before, which I just laughed at. So what's interesting with both of these relationships that you were in is that the person you were with had this controlling behavior or this smothering behavior or, Mm -hmm. um, just needing you to tend to them Mm -hmm. and the commonality between both of them are when you left the first one, you were able to get that space and you got the clarity at that point when that space was given you, when you went on that trip and Mm -hmm. here in this one, you were, you had that 10 days where you're away and on day one, you're just away that smidgen and as soon as that kind of control or with being with stuck within that environment was taken away Mm -hmm. you're able to breathe it's like it resuscitated you yeah and you know obviously we'll eventually get to it probably uh, in a second but um when it comes to your own self-care and maybe we'll answer this after for you specifically, how important is it to you for alone time or, or, or <laughs> things along those lines? Yeah, yeah. It, it's very important to me. I think I realized through both of these relationships is that I need to have a certain amount of space uh, physically and emotionally so that I can um, maintain some integrity in my decision making and in my perspective. And so I kind of came out of it beginning to realize that for myself and saying like my intention shortly after I left the relationship and as I was kind of wrapping things up around the area to move back home, I was like, I am taking 
time. I'm not going to work for a few months. I am not, I, I need to take a break and figure some things out because I just knew like this had happened to me at this point. It was twice. It was 11 years in a row, basically of my earliest kind of most formative brain years, right? Like 18 to upper twenties. And I, you know, if it happens to you once, maybe it was just chance. Maybe it was just something that had happened and it was really unfortunate, but it was twice, two in a row. So it was something about me. And I knew that I was the common thread here. So I was like, I need to have a lot of space. I can't date anybody. I need to just take some time and figure out what I am carrying with me. What is making me so vulnerable to this? Because I don't want to do it a third time. I'm absolutely not going to do it again. And yeah, I, I think the perspective, being able to step back a little bit and and just look at something and rather than having to to fix it in that moment or make a decision in that moment, um, it it allows you to do so much more kind of integrating and thinking about like, what is it that I actually want? Like, what is it that would most align with what, what I hope for or what my dreams are, right? And I was never able to do that throughout all of it. I could just tell you, it doesn't really feel like my life is going in a direction that I want it to, right? That's about all that I could name, but I couldn't figure out how to shift the direction that it was headed. So at this point, we have separated. I am graduating from grad school. Um, and my ex and I have, you know, well, attempted to work things out. I've worked with the attorney and I've gotten a separation agreement in place so that we could, so that I could feel like I could safely move back home. Um, in the area we were living, in order to get a divorce, you have to be separated for a year and a day to apply for a divorce. So I knew that this was still going to be like a long road to make it official, but it was already, in my mind, it was official. Like we weren't, we, there was no chance of getting back together because it would cost me my life. It would cost me my identity to do that. And I couldn't see that there was any benefit from that. There wasn't, it wasn't worth the the possible risk. And if I could maintain my integrity and, and my sense of self and take care of myself, then I could give so much more to the world. Um, and I felt like I could offer so much more to other people, to my patients, to my family, to my friends. And so it just it just made sense, I guess, when I like kind of laid it out in my mind like that, that this is the path that I have to go on um, because it's the path with the most return and the most reward. So even though it was really hard to start telling my family that I was going to be getting divorced and I did like get some of the family shaming and like, oh, like, are you sure God always loves marriage and you can heal your husband if you just stay married? And I was like, nope that's not the way it works. Like, and I just was really firm, um, about it. I, I went through, I guess, in my own, like kind of process of healing, I had to do a lot of deconstructing of my own kind of faith and that identity, because it was, um, was a significant part of who I was. And it also played a lot of, played a big role in my relationship with my ex too. Um, so 
I kind of, I had to do, I think initially a lot of my work was beginning to let go of some of those, um, I guess lies, um, of that had held me there that had kept me in that relationship. And one of those big ones was that if you love someone enough that you can like save them from themselves and it's just not true. It's, it's not, you can never love someone more than they love themselves. And that I, I had to shift that then to myself and I had to then like, well, if, if no one can love you more than you love yourself and I can't save my ex because of that, then I have to be the one to love myself and to take care of myself. And so it began for me like a long journey um, and a really good journey um, of paying attention to myself, of learning my emotions <laughs> that I had been stuffing down for years and years and years, decades of my life. and. Um, I'm really grateful for my family and my friends during that time because they were instrumental. I essentially, after I, you know, left my ex, because I was the one that had to leave the house, I was essentially homeless. And um, my friends took me in for two and a half months. I had multiple, a couple of friends. First, I lived for like a month, a little over a month, and then the next one for like a month and a half. And I mean, it was just so healing that they would love me so much that they would just let me stay with them and be with them. And I, I don't know, it just, um, it made me, I think, realize that I was, I was worthy of love, even if I wasn't, you know, giving to them as much as I thought that I could. And it began, I think, for me to shift the narrative a little bit, because I had always had to give so much in my intimate relationship, so much of myself. And here I was homeless <laughs> and they just loved me. They just wanted me to be happy and whole. And I think that like those friendships were some of the first time that I really felt that. Um, and I don't know, it was, I couldn't, I don't think I could say enough how much it meant to me <laughs> that that, that that happened. Um, so after I lived with, my friends for a while and I had this goal of moving back home I, I did I moved back home I did this like two-week road trip with my older brother where I I got a um after I finally had gotten the title of the car from my ex I went to go buy my first brand new car by myself and um was really happy how I negotiated with the, the people. And I was like, I'm going to learn to like set boundaries and negotiate for myself. And I was just like this whole like new, like woman experience. I don't know. I, I feel like people probably had practiced things like that when they were younger, but it was my first time really advocating for myself in all of these different spheres of my life. And um, so I was really excited. And when I was packing up the car, I was just so thrilled. I was just, this is it. I still have that car and I still love it whenever I'm like going on a road trip or anything. I just, it, it feels so empowering. And um, I, it was just so good. We, I ended up driving um, across the country and I like connected all these like dots and cities of family and friends along the way. And so it was just this journey of, of connection um, and of, and it felt really great to do that with my older brother. And then when I moved back to 
um, the West Coast, he had just bought a house and I asked him if I could stay with him and he was totally cool with that. So I ended up being the person that like helped him move. So my way of not paying rent since I wasn't earning any money and not working a job was that I like unpacked his house and moved things and then painted it. And I had a great time. I loved it. And um, his friends would like joke um, about it and like, oh, your sister's at home doing all your work for you. <laughs> like she's paying your house. She's making it really nice. And you're just here at work. But it was a lot of fun. I think we worked really well together. And um, it was just fun to like reconnect with my brother after all of those years. And I think it really solidified our um, our relationship as friends, not just like, you know, distant siblings or anything. So now I'm like really close with both of my brothers and their relationships that I like wouldn't live without. Like I, I appreciate their input on everything. And um, I, I just think it's great. So I stayed with him for probably about three months total. And then I got my first job and back and just kind of kept on digging in found a counselor and, um, started like came the first day saying like hey like I'm not actively in a relationship right now but like I need to heal these wounds because you know you fool me once shame on you fool me twice it's definitely me <laughs> so I I don't know what I'm doing here but I I need to fix something I need to do something different so that I don't keep winding up in these um in these relationships where I get so hurt and so we did a lot of work and he did things like EMDR, um, which is a good way to like rewire the kind of neural connections and things. And um, a lot of reading, um, just a lot of meditation. So there were a lot of different strategies that I tried to like layer for my healing. And I mean, I guess the, the biggest thing that I did was just those really healthy connections with family and friends. Those were um, really essential and, and integral way that I healed from those relationships. And I am five years out at this point from, from my ex, um, actually celebrated the anniversary of that flight from my home this month. <laughs> so, um, and it's been a great five years. Um, I never knew how much more I could live every day. Um, especially when I think about the few months before the few weeks before where I didn't want to live anymore and where things were so dark for me to have come five years from it now and, and look back and just see how much my life is thriving and so full and so engaged. Um, it's kind of mind blowing to me that it's the same life. And if you have any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening, what would it be? I would say that um, healing starts with loving yourself and not to be like kitschy <laughs> or anything, but um, it truly does. You have to love yourself before anyone else can love you. And you have to appreciate your flaws and your weaknesses as well as all of your strengths. And, um, and I, and when you can do that and you can be an integrated person, then you bring so much power and, and to the world, um, and so much healing, um, not just for yourself, but for other people. And so I think that that's one thing that I would say. Um, and, and I think too, that there's this 
really beautiful dance between like independence and community. And, and that has been something really essential that I've learned too, that you want to be your own person and you need space, right? And I, like, I need space to kind of think and to process, but we are communal beings at the same time and we need to be connected with each other, but we should be really aware of the health of those connections. And I think that's where that space and that independence comes in is that we should actually still be evaluating if those connections are healing to us or if they're toxic. Um, and that then it does matter. Um, and if things are toxic, then it's okay to, to let them go um, because you don't need to be broken. I think those are kind of the big things that I think about. Well, Gazelle, I just want to thank you for being here with us today and sharing your story. You, when you grew up, you were given a set of skills and you survived using those skills. And then those skills eventually work against you and you found both times the perfect terrible uh, match in the sense of someone who was going to exploit uh, and abuse those vulnerabilities and those coping mechanisms that you had. And it's so many people go through that and you did a really good job of showing the textbook like version of it. Like it was very, you know what I mean? It was very, the way you went about it was very clear. Yeah. Um, of how those things can happen. And I'm just happy you're out of it and that you're here today to share your story, not just to validate other people, but to, to explain to other people who say, why does someone stay in these things? I can look here and say, here you go. This is pretty easy way for you to see why, because some mm -hmm. people don't care to listen to the psychology of everyone and because everyone is different. And what, how they are, respond to things and how they react to things is different. And what someone says, well, I wouldn't respond to like something like that. Well, great, but try and put yourself into the shoes of someone here. And I think you did a really good job of explaining all of that. And I'm just proud of that you were here today to share your story. And um, just thank you. Well, thank you, Brandon. I, um, I hope that other people that listen to this um, – can know that they can take steps like this too and obviously reach out to other people that are going to help them heal number one um and then number two you know take the time to heal and come share your story someday in the future maybe not on here but don't be afraid to share your story and once again, I just want to thank you, Gazelle, for being on the show. And if you want to be on the show, just like Gazelle was today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Go to the top of the page. There's a button there that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There's lots of instructions. Please do read the instructions. And then either fill out our Guest Form there or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And another thing at NarcissistApocalypse.com is our own safe social network. So if you need more support, please do go to our social network. At the top of the page, there's a button that says Support Group. You click on that button. 
And that takes us to our network. In there, we have our own forum boards where people, where people can post. I'm stumbling over my words again. I, I always do this during this part of the show. And you can just get onto our forums and people will answer you. We have a great crew of people there. We have our support group on Zoom, which is every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. And we have episodes that never made it to air. We have episodes that are completely ad-free as well. So please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, even if you just want to support our show, joining our support group does that. So go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, press that support group button. And if you need even more support, we have friends at DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone because DomesticShelters.org offers you an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing. They can connect you with local resources like shelters, and they can find ways for you to heal and move forward. So please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource today. And once again, a big thank you to Gazelle for being a guest on our show. And now from Gazelle and myself, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>